Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, welcome back to the podcast, and I'm excited to have another uh, guest expert this week, a fellow Edlerian and an old-time friend. His name is Dr. Paul Rasmussen, and I'm excited to uh, read his bio here to you because he's a pretty impressive fellow. He is the staff psychologist and intern supervisor at the WJB Dorn Veteran Affairs Medical Center in Columbia, South Carolina. He works with veterans in an outpatient treatment program addressing issues related to PTSD, anxiety, and mood disorders and other issues related to post-military adjustments. He's a licensed clinical psychologist and a diplomat in Adlerian psychology. He received his PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Georgia, an MA in experimental psychology from Florida Atlantic University, and a BS in psychology from Southern Utah University. Prior to working with veterans, Paul was core faculty at the Adler School of Professional um, Psychology in Chicago, Illinois, where I'm an alumnus, 2004, um, where he was also the director of the Adler Child Guidance Center. And prior to the Adler School, he was also a professor of psychology at Furman University in Greenville, uh, South Carolina. He's also an author. His books include Personality Guided Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, as well as um, Competition, a Multidisciplinary Analysis. And the book we're going to talk about today, The Quest to Feel Good. Uh, as well, he also has a children's book called Meet Stevie, a child, children's book for parents. 
He's uh, also been the co-author for our um, psychological strategies column for the Journal of Individual Psychology, which for people out there, that's uh, the Adlerians have their own journal. And so you can check that out. And he's currently a member of the faculty and board of directors of something called the Rudolf Dreikers Summer Institute, which we know affectionately as ICASI, which is a, a wonderful opportunity for parents and therapists and students to come together with their families and partners. And it is two weeks of intensive training and intensive fun. Uh, we, ha- we have played guitars together in Lithuania and uh, taught together down in, was it Indiana? Indianapolis, yeah. In Indianapolis, Indianapolis. I didn't know where I was. I was just on campus with you friends. I don't know where the plane dropped That's me off. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, he's, so, and he's been presenting internationally um, since 2007. And so he is a high, high in demand and a pretty important person in our world. And I'm so grateful that you made the time to, to jump on today to talk to us about what I find to be an intriguing contribution to the Adlerian literature, the quest to feel good. And it's timely, I think, given that we are in the middle of a pandemic and we have just so many people that are presenting with anxiety, depression, and bigger than usual um, emotions and feelings. So, so maybe I'll, I'll start by asking you t- that very question. What do you define as, a, a, as an emotion and how do you differentiate it from a feeling? Talk to us about emotions. Okay, that's that's a good question. Um, I felt a little panic there for a, for a minute. What do I call emotion? I wasn't sure what I was going to say. <laughs> um, but but semantically, I think we can make some important distinctions between feeling states, affect or affective expression, and emotion. Now, collectively, it's all emotion, and emotion are just those feeling states that we have that that energizing force. But we can distinguish between you know sort of our existential feedback mechanism, that feeling we have that tells us how our life is going. So, you know, I'm feeling good right now. I'm feeling bad right now. I'm feeling a little unsettled, a little uneasy. Those are feeling states. And in the book, I describe feeling states as that ongoing, you know, moment to moment inventory of our existential status. Life is good when it feels good. Life is bad when it feels bad. So that's a feeling state. All right. That's part of the whole emotional system, but we can call that a, a feeling state. And then there are affective expressions. So I might feel something. I might feel some degree of uh, anxiety and you can see it in my facial expressions. I might be bored. You can see that in my posture and my facial expressions. When I'm speaking to somebody, if I'm excited, you'll hear that in my tone of voice and facial expressions as well. So those are emotions that we display to, to other people. So that's affect. So when we use the term affect, we're usually referring to our display of emotional energy to others. Which, which, is, which is big communication, right? Which is, is the, which importantly, we, we should understand that emotions are our primary means of communication. You know, we think of words, but words are something that we invented so that we could communicate with one another. But we use the words really just to sort of describe our, our feeling states, our emotional experiences, and then we animate our words with affect. 
So, and, and here's the thing that, that's really important to keep in mind is that when we come into the world, we don't have words. We don't, we don't have the capacity to communicate words. We don't have it at a very sophisticated level for, for several years. But we have one, the ability to evaluate our existential status by how we feel about life, too hot, too cold, scared, uncomfortable, nervous, whatever it might be at that infantile level. So we have the ability to evaluate our quality of life. And we also have the capacity to communicate that feeling state to others. So we can express to others our needs through affect. So So the, the crying baby with the wet diaper who cries out, Exactly. Exactly. And I've, I've made the, the joke for, I think I didn't write this in the book. I mean, it's, it's sort of convenient to the infant that those adults in their world find crying so incredibly unpleasant that they're compelled, they're motivated to do something to stop it. And think of, you know, the implications if a distressed baby, you know, sang like an angel there would be no incentive by its care providers to run in and help. In fact, we try to keep it distressed in order to enjoy the, the beautiful music. So it's, it's a convenient uh, evolutionary outcome, I suppose, that we find that so unpleasant. So those are, so when we talk about emotions, we're talking about our feedback mechanism, our affective expression. And then the third thing to keep in mind about emotions is that human beings don't do anything if they're not emotionally compelled to do it. So emotions, you can think of emotion, energized motion. And this is, this is where when we talk about emotions, this is what we're really talking about. That, that energy that compels us into some sort of accommodation, some sort of adaptive action. And, and, I, and to your point, that adaptive, that, that you know, you really embrace these as being a sort of biological wisdom of, <laughs> right? It's, it's good adaptation. We don't, we don't want to not have emotions. We don't want, they, they serve an important purpose. That, that is the point. Every emotion serves a critical adaptive purpose. So we don't, we don't want to get rid of them. We don't want to take medicines that eliminate anxiety or anger or depression. We might want to take some medicines perhaps at times to help when things have gotten so out of balance. And I use the term out of balance, not necessarily when play chemically out of balance, but just out of balance in life. We might want to take some medications to kind of help. But those emotions are still serving the purpose that they serve. And every yeah. emotion serves a unique purpose. And, and as, as therapists and parents, we want to get kind of curious about that because that's really important information for us. And so I, I think it's important to have a little conversation here and knowing that the people listening to the podcast, some will be Adlerians and, and know some of this stuff, but other people are really hearing some of these concepts for the first time. And that is one of the important distinguishing features in Adlerian psychology is the difference between the DSM which is a, about about the psychology of p- possession versus use. Can can you speak to that? Yeah, happily. Um, you know, and they, and people won't even know what the DSM is. We call it the big fat book of ugliness or unhappiness or whatever. Yeah. But you know, it's it, we we appreciate that it has a a role in creating a description so that people can be talking about the same presentation, but it doesn't speak to to uh, ideology, cause, and you know. Um, it's it's got great limitations, and we're we're not bound by it as Adlerians in the sense that we don't embrace it in the same way. 
And, uh, to be sure, uh, to be sure, I mean, for those who don't know, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and it's published by the American Psychiatric Association. So it's a medical book. You know, it's it's published by by a medical community and primarily used by a medical community, and it's a, a wonderful book for describing the different ways that humans can struggle. So, and, and it does a good job of documenting, if you will, the need for treatment, the need for some, some form of intervention. It provides wonderful operational definitions of various you know, conditions or human experiences that we, we might wanna talk about. But we have to be careful not to take it too literally. And unfortunately, it's, it's you know, at, at the foundation is you know, medical treatment. Medical treatment is medicine, medicine is, you know, produced by drug companies and drug companies are a market. And so they want to make money. So, you know, there's been some controversy about how we make use of the DSM and are we documenting medical disorders? And, you know, in the 90s, you know, we've, we've referred to this as the great, you know, medical lie of the 1990s and the notion of the chemical imbalance. And that was really misleading. And there's a reason that they had to pull those ads off the television that were promoting that view. You know, really the balance of your chemicals is going to fit your lifestyle. So your biochemistry will be balanced to your lifestyle. Now, if your lifestyle is out of balance, and that's how I was referring to it, you know, before, then you're going to experience upset. And upset is experienced by compelling emotions. And the nature of your upset, if you will, is, is going to be distinct. One type of upset is different than another type of upset. Not to be vague, you know, you can be upset by anxiety, nervousness, or fear. You can be upset by anger and frustration, or you can be upset by discouragement, hopelessness, and depression. And so we can talk about these as distinct parts of the human experience such that we can categorize them. But what these are, are terms that we have used to describe different ways that people struggle in life. And those struggles that we have in life are going to be reflected in the nature of the emotions that we are experiencing. And those, those struggles are going to emerge out of conflict between the realities of life and one's lifestyle assumptions, which includes one's attitudes of how they think life ought to go. And when our view of how we think life ought to go conflicts with how it does go, there's going to be some type of upset. And that type of upset, depending on the, the, the nature of it, the extent of it, could show up and meet the criteria in the big book of problems. So that we could say we have a clinical condition. Okay, that's fine. And the DSM does a good job of pointing out that when we say that the person has a clinical condition, all they're saying is that the extent of the upset is interfering with their ability to live a meaningful life. It's, it is, it's such a, a beautiful way of, of trying to encapsulate that. And the example that I often give parents, uh, again, around emotions and embracing that they serve a function uh, you know, when, 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 when there's death, and of course there has been a lot in the pandemic sure. and when people die, we mourn yeah. and we don't, we, that's an emotionally appropriate response 
to, to death. Now, in the DSM, I understand that between editions, they shortened the appropriate amount of time you're supposed to feel sad. And that could be cultural. That could be a whole bunch of different things. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're broken, disordered, have a mental health condition. It's really defined. And we say the box is this big. And as soon as you're outside of it, then you meet a criteria. Um, but if it means that you can now get a free antidepressant and go back to work, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to, as opposed to sitting in grieving and doing your process, uh, I, I just think that's a really clear understanding for for people to get this idea that um, how much are you disturbed? How much can you function? What's you know uh, where is the upset where you need help? And you and you said in your book, people don't come to you with like a problem per se. They come because of the emotion piece. Right. That's what opens the door to, to visiting a therapist. Yeah. Yeah. They come to see me because the feeling states are unpleasant. And they want relief from those unpleasant feeling states. And they can go to a psychiatrist who can give them a pill that will block that feeling state for a period of time. It usually doesn't last very long. Or they can come to somebody like you and me and do some work to adjust their lifestyle orientation such that those feeling states become less necessary, less defining in their life. But that usually requires some work, some therapeutic work. And some people don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so if we go back to um, emotions and you, you've given us the three functions of emotions, but you also categorize them into two big defining buckets. You, you talk about those, the validating and the compelling. So can, can you describe those and give us a, a better descriptor? Yeah. So generally when people are talking about emotions, they talk about the positive and the negative emotions. And I want to make the point that there are no negative emotions. There are only emotions that we find unpleasant and want them to go away. So, uh, and generally the positive emotions are those that we like. Okay, so there are emotions we like and emotions we don't. Why do we have both? Well, we experience the validating emotions when things are going the way we want them to go. So validation, throw your hands in the air and say, yippee, life is going the way that I want it to go. I have somebody that loves me that I love. You know, I got what I want, so I'm happy. Things are going even better than I had hoped, so I'm ecstatic. So we have these emotions that say, okay, you got it. You win. Life is going the way that you want it to go. The problem is life doesn't often go exactly the way we want it to go. Funny, funny, funny how that is. Funny how that works out. And I make the point that really in a, in a typical day for a typical person, about 20% of our day is spent in a validating state. Things are going well. The bulk of our time is spent in a compelled state. And a compelled state is an emotional experience when things aren't quite so, aren't just so. Adler talked about, you know, the striving for perfection. We're constantly living our lives, striving for this um, you know, fundamental desire for everything to be just so. And the fact is, whenever it is just so, it's only just so for a short period of time, and then it's out of balance again. It's, it's not just so. And we know that it's not just so because we're aware of things, we evaluate it, and then we valence it. And to valence our awareness is to give it that emotional energy, which says things aren't the way they ought to be, and that energy, that compelling energy 
The reason I use the word compelling is because it compels us to do something to accommodate to the circumstances of our environments so that we can feel, feel better. Now, in very simple terms, you know, we can think of this in, in terms of, uh, you know, hunger and thirst. I'm a little bit thirsty. I feel the, the pangs of thirst. So I am compelled by thirst to hydrate. I am compelled by hunger to, to eat. I am compelled by boredom to act. I am compelled by anxiety to resolve a challenge. So this compelling energy then is motivating us to take care of the things that we need to take care of in order to feel better. Now, this is where things are really tricky though, because anytime I'm compelled by something, I'm compelled to make things better. I'm not necessarily compelled to make things good. Oh, and I actually took that quote and I have it on the top of my little daily journal. I, that, <laughs> I love that quote. You know, we all move from felt minus to felt positive, from perceived feelings of, of not okayedness to some relief and felt betterness or felt betterness. Yeah. But better is not in line with that higher executive functioning that says there are good decisions to be made. Yeah. Yeah. The way, the way I've said it, you know, better is always better, but better isn't always good. You know, I'm, I'm compelled to satisfy my thirst and I drink a beer. Well, yeah, that'll work. But in the long run, that may not be the best way. Or maybe a better example is I drink a, a sugary soda. And so I'm making myself feel a little bit better. I, uh, you know, I'm compelled by my child's messiness to, to get my child to behave in a particular way. So I yell and scream at my child. My child then says, okay, fine, and cleans up the mess. Well, in the immediate, I just resolved the problem. In the long run, I probably made things worse. Because now I'm going to have a child who has issues with me, some resentments, some frustrations. So, you know, we need to think about how we're resolving this compelling energy in order to create optimal outcomes, not just immediate resolutions. Yeah. And, and so, uh, again, I just want to make circle back because um, I'm not quite sure I, I fully got because I interrupted because I got all excited about the DSM. So psychology of use versus possession. So this is the idea of the that we selectively choose emotions and use them for our purposes to reach a goal. That's the usefulness of right. emotions as the energy force to, to achieve goals versus the possession. So when in, in a language, it's language is powerful, right? Because when you say I am depressed versus I'm, I'm using depression, we don't use that. We don't talk that way. We don't say I'm using anxiety. I'm using depression. We say I am depressed. I have depression. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that description gets us in a little bit of trouble sometimes. I would argue that we don't choose an emotion. This, um, is, pre this is the pre-conscious. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, because, yeah, that, I mean, that's a perfect example. It's not like, okay, here's the way I'm going to handle this. First, I'm going to get anxious. And if that doesn't work, then I'm going to get frustrated. And that doesn't work. I'm going to throw a fit. And then when that doesn't work, I'm just going to give up and retreat. Now, we don't do it like that. <laughs> but that's how it works. And that's the usefulness of it. So at my unconscious, intuitive level, I perceive my environment. And I see there's something out there I need to deal with. Well, what's the emotional energy that gears me up to deal with something? 
Well, it's not indifference. It's not boredom. It's not discouragement. It's anxiety. So anxiety energizes me to take care of the loose ends that I perceive. Now, I may not perceive them really well. I may know what they are and I don't want to face them. But anxiety is serving the purpose. It is useful in the sense that it energized me to take care of the stuff that needs to be taken care of. So in that way, it's useful, but it's not useful in the sense it's when we use the term, I use emotions, yes, but not necessarily with conscious intent. But this is where they serve a purpose. Now, the psychology of possession view would suggest that I'm just going through life and just spontaneously, you know, as if I'm walking through a haze of something, I'm affected by anxiety or depression, and it just happens spontaneous. And that's not the way it works. You know, people say, yeah, I get depressed for no reason. I promise, no, you never get depressed for no reason. You always get depressed for a reason. We just may not always know what the reason is. But depression is serving a purpose. And the purpose of depression, for instance, is, is retreat. It's, it's the retreating emotion. So when I find myself in a situation that I know to be hopeless, I start to become discouraged about my ability to fulfill an ambition, and I retreat. And nobody retreats happy. They <laughs> retreat sad because depression includes sadness, and sadness is an emotion for loss, loss of an ideal, loss of an ambition. So I retreat in a state of unhappiness. Now, to the extent that whatever it was I was hoping for is life-defining, is critical, then I'm not going to recover from that very quickly. And that depression could linger and may need some medical intervention, perhaps. So can we just check in around teen depression since the pandemic? Because that has just skyrocketed. We'll talk about anxiety separately. But as a compelling emotion, the teens that are experiencing depression right now, what if we were going to pick like an iconic teen with not being able to go to school, not being able to see their friends, describe the, um, the process for them. Okay, well, it's sure it's it's you know the same process as it is for anybody else. It's just it just occurs in an adolescent world, and you know adolescents aren't worrying about the promotion in their management job or worrying about the retirement account, but what they are worrying about is are they having fun? Are they having as much fun as their friends? Are they being included in the social network? You know, are they as popular as the other kids? So these are the sorts of things that adolescents worry about. They're very much in a, in a social world, a world of peers and interactions and comparisons and hierarchies, some more achievement-oriented than others. So now, and you can think about how all the emotions might sort of play out. So first, you know, well, how am I going to get myself connected with all my friends? That's going to feed anxiety, because anxiety is emotion for loose ends. There's stuff out there. How do I connect? Where am I going to get connected? So they go to FaceTime, they get connected, but there's things going on behind the scenes in our social network sorts of things, because these kids are talking to these kids. So the anxiety stays up. They see a post that they weren't included in, that they wanted to be included in. Now they feel hurt and frustrated. And then they react to that, which may then create another problem and they get angry. So now anger comes up and then they find that they're feeling um, rejected, neglected, ignored by their friends. And then they start to feel discouraged. And in that discouragement, they start to become hopeless. 
then, then their we, parent takes their phone away because they've been on social media. They've been on their phone too long and they think they're addicted. Yeah. And now their parents, they're disappointing their parents or they're in conflict with family bonds. Amen. Amen. I mean, and that's it. I mean, that's that's sort of the dynamic. And it's it's important to, to keep in mind that, you know, in our language, you know, we, we've already talked about the fact that language is an invent an invention. And there are three words that we use really loosely. Um, and we think we're being specific when we use these words and we're not. One of them is love, means so many different things. The other is stress. Stress just means I have to deal with stuff. And, and a third is depression. And we've gotten to a point where we use depression to describe any down emotion. All down emotions are depression. Well, that's not true. Um, we, we use that term casually. Some teens, we call them depressed. Really, all they are is just bored out of their gourd, you know, because they can't find anything. To, uh, they're kind of moping because they can't find any excitement. And then we react to it. Oh, they're depressed. And we respond to it. And they think, oh, yeah, I'm depressed. All they really are is bored. Or they may just be discouraged. And, and discouraged is such an important word for us Adlerians. Because, you know, we, we get up every morning hoping our day will be fulfilling and validating and enjoyable. Well, we can't go anywhere. We can't really do anything. We're limited to our social networks. We're flipping through a, a small screen. And we start to think, what's the point? This is never going to work. And then we start to feel discouraged. We lose the courage to go do things that are productive and exciting and novel. And I can't do three hours of calculus in my quadmester online with my math teacher who's talking to the one kid who doesn't get the concept and he's going on for 20 minutes. And now, now I'm distracted and I got failed my first test ever. Yeah. And then you see, so you see boredom there. Then you see discouragement. And then add to that what they do in order to create some sense of validation. And so they'll do some validation by doing something online with somebody, saying something, doing something that then leads them to feel some degree of embarrassment or shame or remorse. And then they become self-critical and then they become more discouraged. And you can see this whole thing just snowballing. And yeah. so we have a, a youngster who just is emotionally flat. Yeah. And that's that affective part where they're talking monotone and not coming out of their room. And yeah. And so there you can, you know, it's great because we're identifying some things that parents should keep an eye out for um, in their real world. Now with anxiety, you know, it's one thing if you've had a kid who's been bitten by a dog and they're afraid of dogs and you can kind of say like, I get it that, you know, something happened there. But, you know, a lot of our kids are having anxiety and a lot of parents have anxiety. This literally like generalized anxiety disorder. So, so to be able to pinpoint, you know, it isn't just the bad comment online or the, the boring quadmester. It's like, they're just, they're just walking around, not being able to figure out what's going on. But, but in the book, you say, no, no, we, there, we can, we can get more into the details. And you gave the great story of the the gal there that uh, was raised by the Christian parents and she's home from school and smoking on the back step and just came in from a night of partying. And maybe there are some things we could trace back to where this stuff comes from. Yeah. Well, yeah, let me say this about anxiety. When a person's anxious, we need to understand the purpose of anxiety. Anxiety is the emotion for loose ends. Okay. You have at some level of awareness 
an appreciation that there are things in your environment that you need to take care of because you're unsettled. You just see there are things going on that, that you're not a part of, should be a part of, wh whatever it might be. Sometimes it's very clear. I have a term paper I need to write, and I'm anxious about doing that, studying for a test. So sometimes we're, we're clear. But if you're anxious, it's because there's loose ends. So now the question that we ask is, well, what are they? I don't know. Okay, well, now we know where we need to go. Where are the loose ends? Well, I have nothing that's getting me excited about life. Okay, that, that's a loose end. So we know what the problem is. We need to find something that gives you a sense of validation, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of joy. We, we figured it out. Or it may, it, that may not be it. It may be, I don't know, there's just something out there I need to deal with. And you find out that there are kids that have kind of got a little social thing going on in the background, and they sort of know that's going on. They're not really sure of it. Well, there it is. There's the loose end. Okay, so once we identify the loose end, then we ask the question, well, what do we need to do to tie it up? And then the other question, so now we're just talking about skills. Well, what does it take to deal with it? Another question we might ask is, well, is it your responsibility to tie up that loose end? This, this is one that's notorious for mothers, you know? <laughs> yeah, oh, I've got to take care of all my little ducklings. I need them all to be in a row and taken care of. And so it's my job to make sure everybody in my world is happy. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not your job. It's a hard sell, but I'm with you on it, but that's it's a harder hard sell than, that's a hard sell in the therapy office. So that's the other question. Well, is it your responsibility to tie them up? And if it's not, then what do we need to do to get you to relax a little bit? We do some mindfulness stuff. We do some distraction, do other sorts of things. And then a, another question we might ask is, well, are they loose ends that really do need to be tied up? Could you they know, stay we, untied? Could life be yeah, messy? That's just the nature of life. Some things just don't get resolved. You know, you pay your mortgage at the end of the month. Guess what? going to be due at the end of next month too <laughs> for many years so so and that's when we might start doing some mindfulness sorts of things and some other stuff to kind of get them to reduce the anxiety but first they just have to be appreciate the fact that look this is what life looks like you know life is adjust and readjust adjust and readjust there is never the final adjustment Maybe, maybe at the very end. We, we take care of something, we clean up our dishes, everything's nice, we enjoy a pleasant evening, and we get up tomorrow and do the same thing. And when people sort of realize that that's sort of the nature of life, I find that they're able to relax a little bit. This is it. And, and that's, again, what I appreciate too about Adler is, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not just psychology, it is quite a bit of philosophy for living. I mean, there is some really important concepts that we have to cover off in yeah. working with families about life, how we approach it, what it's about. It's yeah. very philosophical. Yeah, absolutely. That's, which again, is not going to be covered off by an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety pill. It's only going to get you so far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, the analogy I use is if I break my ankle, um, I, I want, I might want a pain pill to take the edge off the pain, but it ain't going to fix my broken ankle. Yeah. You know? So we might be able to take a pill that kind of takes some of the edge off my anxiety, my despair, but I'm going to have to make the adjustments to life. And, you know, I really want to emphasize, you know, the thing that 
I'm appreciating more and more of my work over the years, is the, the problems that people have just because their hopes and ambitions just don't align with the realities of life. And, but, you know, when I ask people, what are the realities of life? Most of the time, they, they, they don't really know. They have just sort of a vague idea. And I think it's really important to just stand back and go, well, this is sort of what life looks like. You know, everybody else on the road that you're getting, you know, frustrated with, they're just doing the same thing you're doing, trying to get from point A to point B with as little trouble as possible. And as far as you're, they're concerned, you're just another idiot on the road. So let's just work with one another and not get so upset about life just being life. Can we talk about one more emotion? And then I, I do, I want to get on to also um, what your, um, your website and let people know how to contact you. But so, so we have lots of anxiety going on, lots of depression going on, but also lots of anger going on. And I'm seeing that at, uh, it's not uncommon to hear people say, two things. One is, you know, I, I just dealt with all this stuff at work all day and um, my fuse is short and now the kids are in my face. And so, you know, I, I'm, I just, I lose it on my kids and I, I might even feel bad about it afterwards, but they're, you know, that's, that's their release on their kids. Um, so there's the adults who kind of have that, or you made me angry. If I would, you, you were home all day doing online schooling and I was out working and you couldn't even do the, that's disrespectful. And we blow up on our, our kids. But then I also hear, and maybe I'm making too many questions in one here, Paul, but the other thing that I hear that I think is really important for us to debunk. I hear this all the time. I think they call it decompression meltdown or something where the kids hold it, hold it, hold it all day in school. And then when I pick them up at the bus, they let it out. Like we, like we have a container of emotion that all day we're generating anger and we're, we're, we're stuffing it down. We're stuffing it down. I don't know what organ is supposed to hold it, but, and, and then, and then we get off the bus, there's this, oh yeah. Containment collapse is the word. And, and then mom gets it and it's like, well, I'm the safe target. I'm the only safe person that they can let this out at. Can you, can you, can you address both of those? <laughs> yeah. What, what was the term again? Containment, Contain, containment collapse or something. Yeah, containment Parents use collapse. it all the time. That's, yeah. that's, how know, they that, under, that's how they understand their kids' anger towards well, them. It, it makes sense. I, I can certainly see where that's coming from and when to argue it. I, I do think it's interesting how we humans often tend to think that if we name something, we've explained it. And naming it doesn't explain it. But I, let, let me just back up and talk about where the emotion of anger. Yeah, right? that's our that's our root. That's our root into all of this. Yeah. yeah. Now, I know that people struggle with my description of this at times, but anybody that will sort of stay with me in the discussion usually makes my point whether they walk away agreeing or not, they usually have made the point. So, so anger is an emotion that energizes us to remove an obstacle to our desired state. All right, now what's our desired state? My desired state is I want things to go well. I want my day to be satisfying and validating. And we all have our own notion of what a fulfilling, satisfying day looks like, but it's generally all validating emotions. And let me go back. So anxiety says there's a threat to my desired state. Frustration says there's an interruption in my desired state. And anger says there's an obstacle to my desired state. And damn it, I'm going to do something about it. So it energizes us to deal with the thing that's getting in the way of what we want. And what we want is felt plus. 
All right. And then to, to follow that sequence a little bit further, when we realize that we're not going to get what we want, then we get sad and depressed. So we can see the sequence playing itself out. And people with different lifestyles get stuck at different places along that anxiety, frustration, anger, depression sequence. But we go to we go to anger. So anger almost, well, I'm not going to, it always it always reflects a sense of entitlement. Now, people don't like that word, and I get it. I, I understand, and I'm trying to figure out a different way to describe it. But to the extent that I feel entitled to my day going well, when something gets in the way of it, I'm going to complain. I'm going to throw a little bit of a fit, right? And so if I'm going to school and I think people shouldn't, and anytime you're using the word should or shouldn't, you're talking about entitlement. That's just yeah. semantic work, all right? Yeah. So teachers shouldn't give me a bad look. Other kids shouldn't be petty. Other people shouldn't talk about me behind my back. So, so teenagers should get out of bed to do their online learning. And they should try their hardest, even if it's a pandemic. And, and just as you and I are using that word, you can feel our tension increase. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. It should be this way. And so if you keep holding on to these shoulds, you're going to get increasingly frustrated. And that frustration is going to leak out, you know, as an anger expression. You know, you know the, the expression of frustration is, Ugh, which is an adult version of childhood whining. Well, when adults go, ah, and then we go, damn again, and then we explode. So it's just along that sequence. But it's always coming from this idea that I shouldn't have to deal with oppositional children. I shouldn't have to be reminding teenagers to get out of bed. I shouldn't have to move out of the center lane of traffic. I shouldn't have to deal with this stuff. And my question to people who say that is, well, you're, uh, you're implying a bunch of rules, and I want to know who, who sets these rules, because I think maybe we should talk to them about that, right? Because you're operating on a lot of assumptions about how the world should be. And if you have come to believe that adolescents should act like um, well-disciplined adults, somewhere you got misled about things. because. For the history of teenagers, they've acted like teenagers. Yeah, so, back to there's quotes from you know whatever back to like Epictetus and the, and and yeah. um, you know that the teenagers were problems in 200 you know BC. <laughs> I've had conversations with with parents over the years. I'm going if you're expecting a teenager to be well disciplined, reasonable, and rational, it's sort of like expecting your three month old to use the potty. It's not a complete impossibility, but it's highly unlikely. Or I've had parents who will say, I want to trust my teenager. And my question to them is always trust them to what? Because if you're hoping to trust them to act like well-disciplined adults, yeah, you probably can't trust that. But if you're trusting them to act like teenagers and you're clear of what a teenager is, then you're not going to be disappointed. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great way to put it. So let's, let's align your expectations with the realities. Yeah. And the realities are teenagers are going to uh, act like teenagers and toddlers are going to act like toddlers. And if we can just take that in stride, then we don't have to keep harboring all of this frustration and resentment. 
It's just life being what it is. But as soon as we think it should be otherwise, I, I, I'd love to tell a story. I, I was once two minutes late going to a, to a meeting and one of my veterans told me how angry he was at me for disrespecting his time and that he was there at 2.30, whatever the time of the meeting was. And at, at 2.34, he was getting increasingly angry at me. And I usually am on time, so I don't want to appear casual, but sometimes, yeah, maybe a couple minutes late. And I looked at him and I said, well, I hate that you live at the mercy of my imperfections. And he was a smart, intelligent man. He looked at me for a minute and I just saw him nod his head a little bit. And he goes, okay, I got your point. I, I, I use, I have, that was way more eloquent, but I often, when I see people like whatever, getting angry at simple situations and I'll say like, you don't even know that person. Do you think I'm going to give up my happiness for some stranger? I'm not I'm going to hold on to my validating emotions. I'm not going to go to the 80% of discontented satisfaction because someone cut in in front of me in traffic. Uh, my, my mood state and feeling state's too important to me. I'm not throwing it away for nothing. I'm not giving it to them. Yeah, I'm, I'm not giving it to them. Person. Absolutely. Now, yeah. th- think about this as a really story, uh, whatever this term is, containment syndrome thing. Again, I get it, but I, I can imagine how that's fed. Because we have parents who feel entitled to not having to deal with the burdens of life and work stress and child stress and financial stress and aging stress. I shouldn't have to deal with these things. All right. Well, number one, yeah, sorry, you do. Uh, bless your heart. And, and then they deal with these kids who are going to school thinking they shouldn't have to deal with all this other stuff. The kids let all that stuff go. Parents are thinking, well, yeah, you're right. You're victimized by life just like I'm victimized by life. And so now what we have are two entities in the same family all taking on this victim posture of, oh, the world is unfair to me. And yeah, it's unfair to me. And ah, I have this right to explode. And, you know, I, I dumped some French fries on, on the, my car seat the other day when somebody stopped to front and, you know, too quickly in front of me and I yelled out a certain exploit you know did you know yeah yeah i did and then then i laughed at myself and then i felt sad that i wasn't going to enjoy my french fries but (laughs) so you know we're all going to do that on occasion we're not we're not saints but we do have to sort of realize this is what life looks like and so when that child does that and the parent says yeah you know i can be frustrated at times for sure what was the good stuff that happened at school today and when that child comes to learn that there's really no value in claiming this victim, you know, life, oh, I was mistreated here and this was unreasonable and that was unreasonable, then they don't do it. Okay, yeah, boy, that can that can be unpleasant. Well, okay, so what was the good stuff? And, and then they have a conversation, oh, well, someone said did this and this was funny and I got an A on my paper. And so they're not defining their relationship by problems. And it's interesting to me, and I, I challenge people to do this, eavesdrop in public when you can. And it's fascinating. Just don't get caught and, and be, be, be respectful. But what you find is what people love to talk about more than anything else is how they're being victimized by life. Interesting. You know? I yeah. will keep an ear for that now. Yeah, these people did that. And I couldn't believe they did this. And can you believe such and such? And oh, and I just blew this. And I got that's just such a sad way to go through life. Why don't we celebrate our victories and kind of take our, our tri- trials in stride, seek the help where we need it, and you know, address life as it, as it comes up. 
but but let's be realistic about what life is. I I love the story. Um, you know, David Foster Wallace in in his famous um, "This Is Water" speech. You know, tells the story of the two fish. You know the story. I do, but say it again because not everybody listening will have. Yeah, it's it's such a classic story. So so uh, these two adolescent fish swimming through the ocean. They come across this older fish, and the older fish says, "Hey boys, how's the water?" And then the old fish swims along and the two younger fish swim, you know, along as well. And then eventually one of the young fish turns to the other young fish and says, what the hell is water? Now that never gets laughs, but people kind of stop and think about it. And the point of it is we got to appreciate what we're swimming in. And, and sometimes what we're swimming in is, is pristine, it's pure, the temperature is ideal. We're only swimming in the water with the people we want to be swimming with, and they're enjoying us as much as we're enjoying with them. That's what we want. Ain't going to happen very often like that. More often, people are going to, the water's going to be too hot, it's going to be too cold, the current's going to be against us, it's going to be a little murky, it's going to be a little crowded. That's the water. That's the water. Now, what can we do to make it better? Well, let's try to be fair. Let's try to be kind. Let's try to be respectful. Let's be forgiving. All the things that we Adlerians know as social interest. Because the more that we're contributing to the clarity of the water, the clearer the water gets. But if all I'm doing is being pissy and moaning and waiting for everybody else to clear up the water, it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. But this is the water. And I'm, I'm nervous about it. Sometimes I'm frustrated with it. Sometimes I get a little angry. Sometimes I get a little bit discouraged. But let me see what I can do to make it better. Because to the extent that I make it better, guess what it is? Better. <laughs> better. There it is. And that's what people are hoping for. They want to be better. But we see everybody seems right now just be waiting for everybody else to make it better. Yeah. And, and this is, again, the uh, hallmark of Vedlerian psychology is that we're each called. We're each called to make our contribution, how, you know, how, however big, how, however small, but we're all put on this planet to be in the service of others and to be in the service of improving, improving the water, water, for lack of a better word. I think that's such a great way of looking at it. Um, water, yeah. And so we've talked a lot about the family application of this and we've, and there's so much more in the book of parents want to get it. Like you get quite like you go right, you go to jealousy. You go, I mean, you really talk about each of these emotions if people want to continue digging in. We just talked about the three big ones that are coming up in my practice. And I, I think are high incidence in, in the public here. And we talked a lot about it in home setting, but you also have a website and you are also working in the workforce. So can you tell us about your work in the website? Well, actually, right now, I don't really have a website. Um, oh, I looked it up. Yeah, well, you, well <laughs> what did you find? Um, <laughs> I found a page that sounded like I could hire you for my corporation because okay, all my good. work, all my all my employees are falling apart because of COVID and I need you desperately. Okay, good. All right. Well, that, look at that website. We do have. Okay, great. Um, yeah, there isn't it. There isn't. I, I did in the past have sort of my own personal website. I, I don't any longer. But okay, two things. So one is I'm, I'm working, you know, full time with veterans. And in this work with veterans, we're helping them to do post military adjustment. And, and I want to emphasize this because the, the fact is, you know, most people get to adulthood unprepared. And when you get to adulthood and you're unprepared, you are going to face conflicts between your expectations and reality. 
And those conflicts are going to be felt as anxiety, frustration, anger, and depression. So you have to adjust your attitude towards life to more accommodate the realities of life. But I want to emphasize, we want to try to make the world be as good a place as it is. So we don't just accept, um, you know, unfairness and injustice and what have you. But, you know, one of the problems with a lot of veterans is that they, um, you know, they reach a point of adulthood unprepared. So they join the military. And then the military uses them and chews them up and spits them out, says, thank you for your service. Here's your, your discharge papers. Go live a life. But now they're 10 years into adulthood unprepared and with some trauma often from from the military. Not always trauma, but sometimes, you know, trauma. I don't, I don't want to assume that every veteran is traumatized. Some of them are not. Most of them are not. But um, they are impacted by having worked in the military. So we're helping them just to adjust to, to life. And that's true of everybody. Now, military veterans are a unique group. But the fact is, most adults get to adulthood unprepared, and that lack of preparedness creates these conflicts. So we have developed a program called the Emotional Health Initiative. And what we do is we we go into corporate settings and help the workforce just to understand the common dynamics of the human experience. In a sense, we go in and we teach them about the water. And we teach them that this is sort of what life looks like. And here's what we can do, using our phrase, to make it better. And every day is going to include some troubles. And some of those troubles you can respond to in a way that the outcome is actually good. But a lot of those troubles that you're going to face in a day, the accommodations you are going to make are probably only going to make them better and fall short of good. But let's remember that better is better. And the number one rule anytime you're in a bad situation is don't do things that make it worse. And we talk about, and here are the things that you can do to make it worse, including doing a containment purge. Because doing a containment purge at the wrong time is probably going to make a situation worse. And I'm going to use that phrase, but we also talk to them about how not to hold on to anger. Yeah. It's how you let things go. You know, it's, it's the, you know, the funny thing is all you have to do to let anger go is say, oh, well, <laughs> it is what it is. But you have to kind of get good at that and certainly take care of the stuff that you need to take care of. So to the website, the website is the Emotional Health Initiative, um, ehinitiative.com. And I'll put, I'll put that link on the site as well as your books and things so people can just click to the show notes and get all that. I yeah. love it. Love it. And, uh, and so right now we're adjusting that to, to meet this sort of virtual reality that we're all facing. And I think over the years, I'll probably start moving myself out of the, the VA system and, and just start doing more of this. this is, it's very, very rewarding. It's so, so needed. <laughs> Every, well, you, you, I think Adlerian, for, for, forget you and I, I think Adlerian theory is needed by the world, right? Yeah. It just the, it just to, to spread the word, which is part of why I do this podcast. It's part of why I do my little Facebook lives. It's like, I'm really trying to get people out there to take an interest because we have so much to share if people want to do the journey with us, but they, but they, they often don't, you know, we're, 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 we're not necessarily findable, recognizable. And so uh, we got to keep pushing it out there. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, this this is a time that really needs Adlerian psychology. And it's it's just dealing with the realities of life and helping each other out. Yeah. We're all yeah. in this together. Let's let's figure out a way to help each other out and not get too caught up in the trouble. And so I thank you for your time, for, for, for contributing to my podcast and for linking arms with me as we face life. <laughs> yeah, really happy to do it. I'm glad you're doing this. It's awesome. Oh, well, th- thank you. This has been wonderful for me. And, uh, and I hope at some point you'd be willing to come back on and uh, either talk about trauma, competition, or whatever your hot want to shout it out to the world uh, topic might be. I, I'd love to keep chatting. I'm, this has been so helpful to my parents and me. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it. Thank you, Allison. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.